My Father, it is with uh, thankful hearts and recognizing the great privilege we have to not only have your word given to us, written down and preserved and kept through all these ages so that we might have it today, our own personal copy, which is tremendous truth, which has not been known through much of the history of your people, but here we are. We have it before us, and we have the privilege to open it without fear, without concern of threat uh, for our lives. And so we thank you for that privilege. And for those who don't enjoy that, we ask that you would sustain them with the very hope that Peter's been pointing us to. Um, those who truly are suffering with and have reason to fear, that you would fill them with the faith that sees and lays hold of with full confidence. Uh, the salvation that is ours in Christ. And to the end that we might lay hold of that same hope and gain wisdom in our own context and have hearts prepared for this table, uh, we ask you now, Holy Spirit, again, to teach us, to unfold for us uh, your word and the glories of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. And, and as we know, we know very well, we've... Uh, looked at it many times that First Peter is about suffering and about how to suffer to the glory of God, how to suffer well, how we are to respond, uh, how we are to have our eyes lifted up to God as we might be called to endure hardship in this world for the gospel's sake and for the name of Christ. And, and we know very little of that in terms of actual physical persecution. There's many ways that persecution and suffering comes, but most often when we think of suffering and when we think of suffering in the history of God's people, it is with a very real physical threat, whether that be with the loss of material things in this world, whether it be homes that are taken and forfeited, whether it be physical threats of actual violence, whether it be imprisonment or whatever it may be, that's what God's people have endured for the sake of Christ, the testimony of Christ throughout the history of the world. So we have a, a wonderfully unique uh, experience here in America and, and really in much of the Western world, and that is to have the gospel of Christ in our midst and proclaimed and spoken about with very little threat or fear of physical violence or imprisonment or those kind of things. And, and that may one day change, but that is not our experience now. Polycarp was a disciple of John, the, the Apostle John, who died at the end of the first century. Polycarp knew him well, learned from him, was a disciple of his, and Polycarp was a martyr. And martyrdom was, of course, not an uncommon experience. It wasn't empire-wide. It wasn't like every Christian had the threat of martyrdom, even when there were Roman persecutions. Uh, but Polycarp was one who was known as a leader of the church, who was known as a significant influencer of the church and therefore uh, took, uh, had a special, uh, the Roman Empire had a special focus on him and, and he was eventually martyred for the faith. Uh, an account of his life, and, and we won't go through all of it, but let me read from a letter that he wrote or a letter that's explaining some of his uh, suffering. It, the account goes like this, but as he, speaking to Polycarp, continued to insist, saying, swear, as he, but as he continued to insist, no, excuse me, one speaking to Polycarp said this, a Roman official, swear by the genius of Caesar, he, being Polycarp, answered, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as you request and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully, I am a Christian. Now, if you want to learn the doctrine of Christianity, name a day and give me a hearing. 
The proconsul said, persuade the people. But Polycarp said, you I might have considered worthy of a reply, for we have been taught to pay proper respect to rulers and authorities appointed by God, as long as it does us no harm. But as for these, I do not think they are worthy that I should have to defend myself before them. So the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them unless you change your mind. But he said, call for them, for the repentance from better to worse is a change impossible for us. But it is a noble thing to change from that which is evil to righteousness. And then he said to him again, I will have you consumed by fire since you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while is extinguished for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come and do what you wish. There's other parts to this account of his martyrdom, but it's summarized in this way. And such is the story of the blessed Polycarp. Although he, together with those from Philadelphia, was the twelfth person martyred in Smyrna, he alone is especially remembered by everyone, so that he is spoken of everywhere, even by pagans. He proved to be not only a distinguished teacher, but also an outstanding martyr, whose martyrdom all desire to imitate, since it was in, in accord with the pattern of the gospel of Christ. By his endurance, he defeated the unrighteous magistrate and so received the crown of immortality. Now he rejoices with the apostles and all the righteous and glorifies the almighty God and Father and blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls and helmsman of our bodies and shepherd of the Catholic Church throughout the world. And so is the account of Polycarp and the account of many other martyrs of the early church that you can read about. He faced the threat of death, not only death, quick and easy, but death with a fair amount of suffering. He faced the temptation to avoid that kind of suffering by simply compromising on his testimony of the gospel of Christ. But it is because of that very gospel for which he was suffering, he also found the strength to endure whatever God in his sovereign plan would bring his way. And so he faced the threats, in this case, of a Roman proconsul, the government of Caesar. He faced it with courage. He faced it with determination. He faced it with faithfulness to the calling to which he had been called, not only as a teacher of the church, but also one who would die for the faithfulness to Christ and for the name of Christ. And that is precisely the kind of bold faith and the kind of trust in the sovereign will of God that is laid out before us here in 1 Peter 3. That kind of bold confidence that rests in the salvation that we have in Christ, knowing that the full enjoyment of that, the full blessing of that, is something that we have now in part. It's inaugurated, if you will, but it will be ours in full in the future. It will be ours completely. And that's what enables us to endure whatever God, by His sovereign will, brings to our life in the meantime. It is faith. It is faith. It is understanding the gospel of Christ who suffered on our behalf. It is understanding everything that was won for us in Christ and laying hold of it and counting him as our most precious treasure. And so here in these verses that we've been looking at in 1 Peter 3, and this morning 13 through 18, we'll focus where we left off last time, really in verse 16. Peter is, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving us divine counsel on suffering. 
divine counsel on suffering, how to think about it, suffering, how to respond in suffering, and what is our hope in suffering, in whatever kind of suffering the Lord would bring our way. Let me begin by reading verses 13 through 18, or the first part of verse 18, and then we'll go back and I'll have a brief reminder of what we looked at last week and we'll finish it this morning. So begin with me in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. He said, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ shall be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Back in verses 13 and 14, we noted the first part of this divine counsel is understanding that there is a certain paradox to the suffering of the righteous. There's a certain paradoxical element to the righteous suffering. Why is that paradoxical? Well, one, he alludes to this in verse 13. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And, and the best way to understand that, I think, is, is to basically give a truism. And, and we understand that if you do what is good, and good here being defined as good in God's eyes, so not returning evil for evil, being patient, doing what is right, submitting to civil authority and other kinds of authority, and so forth, then generally you have no fear of harm. Who's going to harm you if you do what is good? That is a, a basic principle in in life and and even in scripture but then he says but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness in other words even though generally it's true that if you do what is good you will avoid a kind of suffering in this world but that's not always true particularly for those whose goodness or whose righteousness is directly attached to the name of Christ and and that was the idea That paradoxically, we suffer for righteousness. Why? Because our righteousness is not a bland or a vague or a contentless righteousness. It is a righteousness that is in itself an affirmation of the gospel that we have believed. In other words, it is an affirmation of our faith in Christ. It is a righteousness that has content. And it is a righteousness that goes against any standard of the world. And it, in fact, exposes and confronts the empty righteousness of the world, and particularly the sinful desires of the world. And so in chapter 4, we noted that he gives one example of this. He says in verse 4, They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. So those who once knew some of these who were formerly pagans and living as pagans, now when they live for Christ and for righteousness, it receives the the censor, the reviling of those who were formerly friends but now oppose them. And many of us have experienced that in life to some degree or to some measure. And so the righteousness that God calls us to in Christ will often confront the world. And when it confronts the world, it exposes their sin. And the exposure of their sin, it incites the hatred of the world and therefore the persecution of the world against Christians for righteousness. 
And yet the other paradoxical element is that in this suffering for the sake of righteousness, he says in the middle of verse 14, you are blessed. You are blessed. That is counterintuitive by the world's wisdom, but is completely consistent with belonging to Christ. That suffering marks one as being blessed. Blessed in what way? Blessed one with the near fellowship of God and the sustaining grace by the Spirit that He gives as we suffer. Blessed by the confidence in the way that it affirms our faith as we are willing to suffer for the name of Christ. Blessed because of the way that we get to glorify God in suffering in the same way or manner as Christ suffered for the sake of righteousness. Christ who left us as an example. Blessed in that it causes us to look forward to our future reward, which is the whole thrust and emphasis of Scripture, and particularly 1 Peter. And so while the world might look at that and say discarded, even as they did of Christ as he hung on the cross, Christ, or God, and God looks at the suffering people for righteousness' sake and says, you are blessed, your reward will be great in heaven. And so it has a forward-looking attitude. But this suffering isn't merely that we endure it. It is that we suffer correctly. We suffer in a way that honors Christ and does not dishonor Christ. And so he says we suffer with confidence. He says in verse, the middle of verse 14, And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. In other words, when we suffer for righteousness sake, we can do so with courage. We can do so with boldness. We can do so with a certain certainty that our suffering is not in vain and God will sustain us in it, even in the example of Polycarp and many others. We can suffer with a kind of confidence because we know that this is not the end. And we can have a confidence because of our understanding of our being held under the authority and the lordship of Christ. And so he says in verse 15, But sanctify Christ as Lord. Don't have fear, but rather live in that confidence under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Which is simply to say this. To sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts is to, in very affections and as the fruit of our faith, that we live under his divine authority as the Lord, the Lord whom we serve. And as we live under his lordship, separating in our hearts our affections, our goals, our desires, our intentions, and all of those elements of living life in this world, and we submit them to his lordship, and that is characteristic of our life, then we are always ready and in the right frame of mind to declare the name of Christ as the reason for our hope. That's the idea here. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a regenerate follower of Jesus Christ and you truly have his life in you, whether you're a Christian an hour old or 50 years old, you have the ability to obey Christ in this manner. You have the ability to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, inherent in this or implicit in this is the idea as well that as we grow in Christ, our ability to give a defense for Christ should also mature and grow. But anybody who truly knows Christ can give an account that he is the reason for our hope, that 
it is because we, being ruined by our sin, have trusted in him who bore that sin, the, the just dying for the unjust, that he might raise us to life and give us a better resurrection in his resurrection. And anybody who knows Christ can testify to that because that is the very heart of our faith. So sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. And so there's a paradox in righteous suffering. There is in righteous suffering to be the proper attitude. It is confidence. It is growth and knowledge. And he also calls us in this way to suffer. To suffer in a way that demonstrates the character of Christ. To to suffer in a way that demonstrates, uh, demonstrates the display of the character of Christ. He says, and... To everyone who gives you to give an account for the hope within you yet, in the end of verse 15, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience. Yet in gentleness and reverence and keeping a good conscience. If there's anything we don't want to be in suffering, our natural, in terms of our natural response, it is to be gentle. But that is exactly what reflects the character of of Christ. He was gentle and he was meek. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart. That was the characteristic of his life. Though there were times to speak boldly, there were times to confront sin, the overall characteristic of his life is that he was meek. He was meek and he was mild and so it is to be with us. So how then do we have this gentleness? Well, it's a gentleness that comes in this way is unique from Christ is that we can have a, you, a, an extra reason to be gentle, if you will, because we realize that even as we are being persecuted by unbelievers, we ourselves were unbelievers of our own. In other words, having an awareness of our own sin, our own helplessness and our own experience of grace allows us to be gentle with others, allows us to understand that we have received by grace what we want others, even our persecutors, to know, which is the grace and the forgiveness of God. We have gentleness and humility because there is then a sincere love and care for those we speak to desiring their good. I don't have a quote from it, but I do remember one example of this is Richard Wombrand. Y'all know uh, Voice of the Martyr? Most are aware of that. That's a ministry started by Richard and Sabrina Wombrand. I'm pronouncing that right, but he, he suffered much under a communist regime. And if you have his book or have read through it, Tortured Through Christ, he talks much about the, the kind of injustice that he suffered uh, for the name of Christ. And one of the overwhelming uh, realities that come out in reading his account is how much compassion he had for those who were his persecutors, those who were his tormentors. He was almost completely free from any kind of rage against them, any kind of anger against them, but had compassion for their souls. And in fact, out of that, some of his persecutors ended up becoming believers in Christ. And that's what he calls us to hear. Even though suffering for righteousness' sake, when our hearts are in line with the Lordship of Christ, and when we are aware of our own sin and having received grace, then we're able to display that to others and actually care for our persecutors. 
And we noted before as well that we are able to have this gentleness when we realize that the work of salvation is not our own. Sometimes we get uptight in witnessing and we get uptight if we're suffering wrongly, almost as if the fruit of our witness and the fruit of our proclamation of the gospel were dependent upon us. And we forget that it is the Holy Spirit who is working in that situation. The Holy Spirit who sustains us in suffering and the Holy Spirit who will bring about any fruit from our witness. And so it is to be with gentleness and it is to be with reverence. But then he says this, and this is where we pick up from last week. It is to be with a good conscience. A good conscience. There at the beginning of verse 16. And keep a good conscience. That is to say, even when suffering for righteousness, even when suffering unrighteously, we are to have lives that are marked by integrity. Integrity, without hypocrisy. Again, Christ is the supreme example here. He says he was without sin. He was without sin. Scripture is unanimous in that testimony that he is one, in verse 22 of chapter 2, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. I think one of the most powerful displays of that is at the end of John chapter 14 when Christ is on his last night before being betrayed and he tells to his disciples that essentially that the evil one is coming and he says, but he has nothing in me. Nothing in me. That is a profound statement of the holiness of Jesus Christ. He has nothing in me. Satan has nothing in me that can accuse me. Nothing in me that can be a charge against me. I am free from sin to the depth of my soul. What I do, I do in obedience to God the Father. And what I am about to suffer, I suffer in obedience to God the Father. So he is the perfect example of that. Of living even, even in the conflict that is brought to him to such a significant degree, ultimately displayed in the cross, that he lived with a perfectly good conscience and truth. Now, what does this mean exactly? The idea of conscience is important in Scripture. Uh, it can be defined one way to do it, uh, and I'll borrow this definition, is this. Your, your conscience your, your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. That's a helpful definition. And if I might make a plug for the book nook, it's in a book entitled Conscience. Uh, in the book nook, you can pick up. But it's your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. And a conscience is something that we have that's fundamental to our being human. It's fundamental to being made in the image of God. Being made in the image of God, we are moral creatures. We have an innate sense of right and wrong. Every human being, as distorted as that sense might be, we have a sense of that some things are right and some things are wrong. We are moral creatures made in the image of God. We won't turn there, but Romans 2 is the foundational passage on that in terms of humanity in general. Even unbelievers, without having the law, have a sense of right and wrong that is a law unto themselves. That said, a conscience can be either wrongly or rightly informed. So even though we have a conscience, even though we are moral beings, our conscience functions rightly only to the degree that it's in line with the truth. Only to the degree that it's in line with the truth. And so it's possible, it's possible to have a clear conscience while believing error. It's possible to have a clear conscience while believing error. Even believing what is false. 
So Paul could say in Acts 23.1, listen to this. He says, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. I have lived my life with a perfectly good or clear conscience up to this day, which would include his time as a Pharisee in which he persecuted the church and his time as a Christian in which he defended the name of Christ. In both of those cases, he says, I've always lived with a clear conscience, with a good conscience. What's important in that definition is this, that conscience Conscience reflects what a person believes, not necessarily what is actually morally right or wrong. It reflects what a person believes is morally right or wrong. And therefore, a conscience is spoken of negatively in a variety of ways. A conscience can be hardened or seared, such as false teachers in 1 Timothy 4.2. A conscience can be overly sensitive such as some among the Pharisaical party in Matthew 23, 4, you strain out a gnat. It was overly sensitive not to, even down to minutia of human tradition, to in any way disobey the Sabbath, even though those were only man-made laws. A conscience can be defiled in Titus 1.15. It can be an evil conscience in Hebrews 10. It can be a weak conscience even among believers in 1 Corinthians 8. Or there can be an accusing conscience. So these are many ways that Scripture speaks of, of that. And as unbelievers, particularly, all of those things are true at various levels. Defiled conscience, for sure, an evil conscience. A hardened and a seared conscience for many if they continue in rejection of the truth. A kind of accusing conscience. In fact, it has been suggested on that idea of an accusing conscience. And this is... This will be a lead-in to what he's calling to here. That the imagery of hell, the fire and the brimstone and the lake of fire and all of that, some who don't take that as literal imagery, and there's, there's reasonable arguments for that, say that that is, a, that is through the picture of fire demonstrating the suffering that will come from a conscience fully aware of its own guilt forever. Fully aware, fully accusing, fully bearing the responsibility for their sin forever when brought before the perfect light of God's glory. So a wondrous promise of the gospel is this. For those who feel the inward accusation of sin, for those who have been made to feel within their own conscience the guilt of sin, the corruption of your own heart, the defilement of sin, that in Christ the conscience can be made clean. The believer tastes tastes the sweetness of forgiveness that through the reality of the resurrection, sin is removed and its guilt is removed. And so part of the gospel call is, as he says in verse 21 of 1 Peter 3, look in the middle there, he says, it is the appeal to God for a good conscience. The wonder of the gospel is that though you being defiled and guilty and condemned and corrupted and polluted by nature, and me as well, obviously, Even though that is our natural condition, in the gospel, what is offered in Christ is a good conscience. A good conscience. That our sin has been forgiven in Christ. And this is something that could never be attained through works. Some of you who come out of Catholicism can well identify with that. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But let me just make a note for you. 
Hebrews talks about that when he's laying out the superior sacrifice of Christ. And I'll just read these. He says, For the blood of bulls and goats in chapter 9, verse 13, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says over in chapter 10 that all of the sacrificial system was a shadow. Christ is the substance. He says that he makes perfect those who draw near in verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered the sacrifices? Because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in fact, in that there is just the reminder of sins year by year. So there is something glorious that is particularly true of the Christian. And that is to know that in Christ and in the sacrifice of Christ, that we can have a clear conscience, a good conscience, because Christ has purchased that for us. But then now what is he talking about here? How does the appeal to a good conscience connect here with our witness? And the idea is this. That having received a good conscience in Christ, having received the blessing of a clear conscience for sins forgiven, that it is the duty of every Christian to maintain that good conscience. To maintain that good conscience through obedience. Through obedience. Now that is, in one sense, uh, difficult because... Christians are more aware of their sin than an unbeliever is. We have the Holy Spirit who's resisting sin in us. But then living in light of that sacrifice of Christ who's always cleansing us, who's refreshing us, who's making us new in the claims and the promises of the gospel, we can live with a good conscience. We can live with a good conscience. As a matter of fact, he said earlier in verse 11... That we are to live as those who abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's living in a way that internally our life under the lordship of Christ, trusting in his sacrifice, is concerned to walk obediently maintaining a good conscience. A good conscience. Essentially, he's saying that even in your suffering for righteousness sake, make sure that it is for righteousness that you are suffering and that even in your suffering, you maintain an obedient life that has a clear conscience before God. That's the idea that maintains a clear conscience before God. The atonement, the forgiveness of sin in Christ's sacrifice doesn't strengthen a believer to have a softer attitude towards sin, but in fact, incites in the believer to have a greater abhorrence of sin. Forgiveness doesn't make us think less of sin. It makes us think more of it. It makes us to abhor it because it is what Christ suffered for. And so he says here, make sure then that you are one who walks obediently with a good conscience. And there's at least a couple of reasons for this. The most basic is this, that by having a good conscience, we affirm and we undergird our testimony and our witness to Christ and the hope that is in us. 
There is nothing that is more damaging to our witness than Christians who say one thing and then act differently. Than those who proclaim the name of Christ and yet don't live consistent with that proclamation. And so he says here, keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience. And he says in verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. There's no glory and there's no particular honor when we bear well the consequences for our sin. And apparently that was something that was expected or at least being said. He mentions that several times. He mentions it over in verse 19 of chapter 2. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrow when suffering unjustly, he says, for what credit is there if you sin or are harshly treated, you endure it with great patience. But if you suffer for doing what is right and you patiently endure it, that finds favor with God. It incites his grace towards you. So a good conscience, one, is that it enables our witness to have an affirmation with our life, by our life. It is then that we keep a good conscience. One old author said this on, The defense of the tongue will avail little except the life corresponds with it. So we want to keep a good conscience so that we affirm the gospel and we don't discredit the proclamation of Christ. But secondly is this, is that a good conscience is a means of spiritual courage and strength. When are you the most weak? When are you the most weak as a Christian? When your conscience is defiled. When somebody levels an accusation against you and you know it's true, it has weight to it. It has substance to it. If that is the case, then we become very weak spiritually. Our ability to speak boldly for Christ is diminished. Our ability to stand boldly for Christ is diminished. Our ability to think clearly in the moment is diminished. Because we have an accusing conscience, we are weak, we have some kind of hidden sin that robs us of spiritual strength. And so part of the call here then is to say that our witness needs to be matched with a life that gives evidence of our faith in Christ, but also that our witness is going to be strengthened and our ability to defend Christ against persecution is going to be strengthened when we walk with a good conscience. It gives us boldness. It gives us boldness. Again, one has said this, and it's a good statement. Integrity of conscience alone is that which gives us confidence in speaking as we ought. Have you ever not said something because your conscience accused you in that same area? So a dirty heart has then witnessed even your ability to speak the truth. Sin and unbelief weakens Holiness and faith strengthens us internally. Integrity is a source of great spiritual strength that enables us to speak boldly. So when an accusation is leveled against you, you don't need to worry because you know that it has no weight to it. You can live with a good conscience and a clear conscience. Now there are some who have overly sensitive consciences and this might even be to them a a discouraging verse because they're like, well, I'm accused of sin and I know that I have sin in me and I know that I'm not perfect in these areas. And so even though those accusations may have no specific weight, they can feel a kind of weakness. And that's why in just a moment, he'll point us back to the reminder that Christ died for our sins, 
the just for the unjust. We never have confidence before God because of our own perfection, but we have confidence for God before God because of the sacrifice of Christ. And therefore, it's not perfection, but it is a life that is living with a short account of sins, that is confessing sin, that is walking obediently, that can have this good conscience and the spiritual strength that comes from it. So let me just ask you this question. How is your conscience? Even as you think about coming to the Lord's table this morning, how is your conscience? Is there anything within you that is accusing you? Anything in you that is accusing you of duplicity? Anything in you that is hardening your conscience against sin? Is there anything in you that weakens your conscience? Is your conscience clear? Is it good? Have you trusted in Christ? Truly, not in name only, have you truly known that forgiving and cleansing reality within of a clear conscience of being forgiven? That's what he's calling to here. And the great glory is if you don't, and if your life is one of hypocrisy or duplicity, then there is that great hope that you can appeal to God even this very moment for a clean conscience for a clear conscience to be forgiven in Christ. And if you're a believer and you're living secretly with a sullied conscience and it's affecting your witness, even your desire to be a witness for Christ where you are, then you need to come clean. And particularly even before you would take the elements of the table. So he calls us here then to suffer But to suffer in a way that our character and our moral character and our testimony undergirds the gospel that we proclaim. And it is to be with gentleness, with reverence, and with a good conscience. But look at what he attaches that to here as well in verse 16. So that, in order that, in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Will be put to shame. And here then he gives lastly the purpose of righteous suffering. The purpose of righteous suffering. And here is that the name of Christ would be honored. The name of Christ would be honored. Again, so that the accusations against you that are leveled against you may be shown to be false and you be shown to be inter, uh, innocent in the matter. Now the question is here, when will they be put to shame? When will they be put to shame? Is he saying here then that if you live with a clear conscience then just hold on because eventually those who are wrongly accusing you will be put to shame and they'll be shown to be wrong. It's possible, and some take it that way, that he means that, and there's precedence with that. He talks about your righteousness will shine forth as the noonday sun. The wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And there is an element where that can happen in life where you're falsely accused and because of your innocence in the matter, that false accusation is shown to be false and you're vindicated and the one who accused you is shown to be in the wrong. However, I don't think that's what he means here. I don't think that's what he's emphasizing here. He says, keep a good conscience so that the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. When is this shame going to come? Well, the only certain confidence that we can have of this being the reality is not necessarily here because Scripture is filled with the arrogance of the unbelief, of the unbelieving, who go to their grave with this arrogant attitude toward Christ. This shame is that which will come at the end of the age. 
It's that shame that will come at the end of the age. Remember that Peter is always pointing us to look beyond what the eyes can see to what the eyes cannot see, which is the promise that is ours by faith in Christ. There will be a time when everything here will be reversed. Will be reversed. Christ bore shame here at his bearing of the shame on the cross and the humiliation that he endured was not because any of those ones who persecuted him would all of a sudden be shown to be wrong. Many of them didn't, most. But Hebrews tells us that he despised the shame because of the joy set before him, because of how things would be in the end, how things were going to be, not because of how they were here, Because we know that whatever shame we bear in the name of Christ here, and beloved, this is hard, isn't it? One of the hardest parts of our witness is to be ashamed, to be thought a fool, to be thought weak, to be thought foolish, to be thought stupid. Nothing shuts our mouth in proclaiming the gospel of Christ very often than that. Being made to feel ashamed. What are they going to think? What are they going to say? What will they... What will they think of me? But he gives us the encouragement here that even though you might be shamed here, and in this case, even in a heightened sense, because it is shame that is piled on you for something that you are innocent of, that you can have confidence that that shame that you bear now is temporary. The shame that you bear now, even as you bear that shame, is bearing glory for Christ and will glorify the name of Christ on that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. That he is Lord. So the purpose of our righteous suffering here is to know that at one day our suffering will be to the glory of Christ because it will manifest his worthiness before all of the watching world. Because when the day of glory comes, when he returns, those who heap shame on us will be ashamed. And we will be shown to belong to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. So the end of it all isn't our shame. It is going to be our glory. But the end of it all for those who heap shame on Christians is going to be everlasting judgment. Everlasting judgment. And this is very powerful to remember. Very powerful to remember. The source of encouragement to believers to persevere in bearing temporary shame is to know that those who oppose Christ will bear everlasting shame. The end of all things, again, will be a complete reversal of how they now appear. The world calls us foolish and themselves wise. But at the end, we will shown to be those who have trusted in Christ to be wise and the world foolish. The world would look at us who rejects Christ and say, you are weak. But in the end, when Christ returns, what will be shown is that the world is weak and Christ is strong. And those who belong to him will be exalted. We take that by faith. We have to take it by faith. Because that's not the way things are right now. Right now, it seems like the wicked have the upper hand, doesn't it? Well, we won't read the whole thing, but I do want to remind you, this is precisely, exactly reflected in the Old Testament in Psalm 73. The psalm that says there in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked 
There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. They have set in verse 9 their mouth against the heavens. They speak arrogantly against God. They reject his truth. They blaspheme his name. And their tongue parades through the earth. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? And he says, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I have walked with a good conscience. Surely in vain I have done that. Because look... Even those who accuse God and accuse me and cause one who has walked obediently to suffer, they seem to have no pains, and yet I have shame. He says, I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. That's, he's feeling that tension. That feeling that tension of one who has sought to keep his heart pure but receives instead only chastening and those who blaspheme the name of the most high seem to have increased in wealth and have no problems in this life and yet he says that this was the case until in verse 17 until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end I perceived their end I knew that right now is not how things will always be He says, surely you set them in slippery places and you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment and how they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Note the psalmist's situation did not change. The arrogant were still arrogant. They still blasphemed God. They still maligned the people of God. They still spoke against what is true. He still suffered for maintaining a clear conscience. But what changed was his perspective on the situation. And he said, yes, that is the way they are now, but that's not how things will be. The righteous will be vindicated. God will be honored. And those who malign his name will be shown to be in the wrong. And so that's what Peter reminds us of here. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And we understand that. And so we're able to hold on. Not out of a bitter desire for them to suffer, the un, our persecutors to suffer, but out of a strong desire for God's name to be honored. And even as we persevere in truth in hope that some of those who now persecute the righteous will one day be numbered among them. And then he says, for it is better if it is the will of God, if it is the will of God, if God should will it so that you should suffer for the sake of doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. And this is an encouragement too. It's a reminder to those who are suffering that you're not suffering. Your suffering is not because of your sin. It's not some kind of divine punishment. God does discipline us for sin. But he's saying, no, God's not punishing for you for your sin. God's not bringing out the suffering because you have done some kind of sin. He's brought it about by his own will because in bringing the suffering to you and sustaining you in your faith and upholding you to have a good conscience as you persevere, you are modeling and demonstrating that very life of Christ who also suffered for your sins. Again, verse 18, once for all, the just for the unjust. Because you're walking in the same walk that your Savior himself endured. Just don't let it be that you suffer for doing wrong. Just don't let it be that you suffer for a bad testimony. And if you have that good conscience, he says it is better. It is better. It's better for you 
It's better for you. It's better for you in many ways, but because, as he's going to end this chapter, because you are identified and participating in him who defeated death, you will participate in the resurrection of Christ. And he says in verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. It's better because the end for you is better. Because the promises to you are better. And we demonstrate the character of Christ when we lay hold of this and we endure it and say, we submit to God's will. This is part of his lordship. If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. It's hard for us to imagine, but that is actually God's will for some. That is his will. And the grammar here suggests it's not necessarily the normal experience of Christians, and we know that, but it is at certain times for certain people to certain degrees. It is God's will that some of his people suffer. And that actually provides a great source of comfort. A great source of comfort. Because it means that it's not for nothing. It means that it's not a suffering that has no purpose. It's not a suffering that is pointless. It's a suffering that will bring glory to God in Christ. That's, that's the idea. If God should will it so, if God should will it so, then trust him in it. Trust him in it. And in so doing, we reflect the character of Christ and we maintain our testimony and he is honored and our hope is that others are saved. But at the end, that's the prerogative of God. And so as we come to the table this morning, this is even in the very table itself, even in the symbols here of Christ's body and of his blood, are an expression of our hope that we belong to one who is returning. We belong to one who is now at the right hand of the Father for us. We belong to one who has redeemed us from our sin and who upholds us by his mighty, omnipotent hand. So let's pray as we come to the table and the men will hand out the elements. Father, thank you for these, your promises. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. May our hearts be strengthened in that hope. Even now as we come to you and by faith, remember your death and sacrifice and your return and our unity with you and one another in these elements. Prepare our hearts and point us upwards to Christ. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.